Welcome everyone. I'm Dr. Justin Arner from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Anil Ranawat, Chief of Hip and Knee Division of Sports Medicine Institute and Fellowship Director at the Hospital for Special Surgery. He was the senior author of the paper entitled Dynamic Assessment of Femoral Acetabular Impingement Syndrome Hips, which is published in the June 2021 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome, Dr. Ranawat, and thank you for joining me. Thank you, Justin. It's an honor and privilege to be here. Yeah, we appreciate your time. And first of all, I wanted to congratulate you on this really interesting study. We really don't know much about hip biomechanics, so uh, thanks for you know your effort. I know these are these are uh, a lot of a lot of work, and I wanted to get right into it and start asking you about some of the details. And one thing that surprised me, and I'm sure the readers as well, is that even basic kinematic activities like walking. FAI patients had really different kinematics. Can you tell us your thoughts regarding those differences, even with kind of these basic activities? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, this two, this study is showing two different cohorts, right? We had a cohort of symptomatic patients with FAI based on radiographs and physical exam. And we had another uh, age matched uh, as well as sex. They were all males. And BMI matched control group of another group of 10 males that had asymptomatic hips on physical exam and circular heads. And basically what we showed, we, we, we put the FAI cohort through a battery of tests of uh, doing various activities such as, you know, walking, uh, range of motion, stair ascent. And we found a lot of uh, differences between the groups. And then we did EMGs on those groups to look at muscle activation firing patterns. And it, it was fascinating that, you know, and basically activities of daily living, uh, which is to me uh, a very low criteria uh, for a surgical intervention um, versus, you know, saying, oh, sometimes you can only find differences with FAI with, you know, sports. But, you know, for this group, uh, we found that there were significant differences, such as the FAI patients walked much slower with a shorter stride and cadence. The uh, FAIs also had actually increased inflection, and we'll go into greater detail about that. Uh, they also had, uh, with walking and stair ascent, they also had increased knee flexion with walking and stair ascent and descent, and they had uh, increased knee valgus during fast walking. So we found a lot of uh, differences in, in this cohort and the kinematics, you know, with, with basic activities of daily living. Yeah, like you mentioned, it's pretty surprising, just activities like that. And And one thing you mentioned before, I wanted to point out that the control hips were really important with this, just to make sure that there was no FAI and you had a few reviewers uh, make sure with x-ray that you were really comparing a normal control group. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And another question I wanted to ask you about that hip flexion increase with FAI patients with stair ascent and decreased internal rotation. Why do you think that reason might might be the case? It is a little counterintuitive, kind of like you uh, mentioned there. Right. So that's, that's probably the most interesting aspect of this paper and it's a theory that I've talked about before. You know, we started this paper probably eight years ago. Um, Travis Mack, one of my co-authors, was a resident. And this was a senior project. Now he's a, a team physician for the uh, you know Utah Jazz. So it's it's been a, it's been it's, it was a labor of love this paper. But it's really talking about hip spine syndrome. And uh, uh, what we classically think of FAI, we do a static exam where the patient is usually uh, lying on a table and we assess their motion and we get impingement, right? And that's because the pelvis is relatively locked. 
when you're doing uh, activity of daily living or sports, your pelvis is not locked. Your lumbar spine has the ability to cope or compensate for your hip flexion. And the, the whole theory of hip spine syndrome is when your lumbar spine is really, really functional and your whole kinematic chain is functional, your rectus and your hamstrings and your firing patterns are functional, your lumbar spine, there's a lot of motion, and that motion lets your hip actually move less. Uh, and there was another paper that we published using EOS that we showed, this was a sit-to-stand paper, that people with FAI actually have to use their hip more because their back actually moves less. We couldn't show uh, this with the, because you know, the back, uh, the motion of the back kinematics are a little harder to do with this, um, with the 3D motion analysis, but increased hip flexion in the FAI symptomatic group is basically saying that your back doesn't work. Your back has coped for a long, long time for your hip problems. Eventually your back gets stuck or it loses its ability to compensate. And then to sit or move or play sports or to walk, you need to get more hip flexion to do those activities. That increased hip flexion causes the cam to get into the joint more and it becomes what I call a wear simulator. This is how we we think of how polyethylene and how hip joints fail when they we wear it a thousand times. So if you have more flexion in your hip joint, it will cause the joint to fail quicker. Versus and versus less flexion and a good back, that hip joint won't fail as quick. And the, the hip joint that needs more flexion will grind it out and it will get symptoms more. So that's really this whole basis of hip spine syndrome. Uh, it's very interesting, and, and there are a lot of other papers now that are out there that support this theory. Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. I mean, as a young hip surgeon, you know, seeing all these people and trying to figure out who's going to benefit from surgery with people with back issues and, and all that, but uh, that makes a lot of sense. We are so focused on one joint, but it's certainly more complicated, like like uh, you mentioned. So uh, as, as you mentioned uh, there also, do you think some of these symptoms of FAI can be improved with just strengthening uh, physical therapy and those kinds of things? Uh, or do you think it's really more of the CAM, that uh, a bony issue that really needs to be taken care of? Um, I completely think that um, physical therapy can help because when I see a patient, first of all, we see plenty of patients with big CAMs and are asymptomatic. And that patient with a big CAM that's asymptomatic uh, has a very mobile lumbar spine. And really the whole point of physical therapy is to unlock the locked lumbar spine, is to reactivate the rectus, reactivate the hamstring, restore your pelvic motion. And that's really the cornerstone of core physical therapy. That's why physical therapy is core strengthening and as well as aperture strengthening. But, but that re- restoration of, of pelvic motion or pelvic torso motion is how you can get a symptomatic cam to an asymptomatic cam. Now, that doesn't work every time. And uh, it also doesn't work on more higher level athletes that need to do a lot more reps and, uh, and you know, and it doesn't prevent the joint from, you know, still breaking down. But I certainly think there's a role for physical therapy. It's, it's a simple fact is that when a patient comes to me and is in a year of physical therapy, no therapist is going to improve that. But if they've had three weeks of hip pain and their pelvis is kind of getting locked, physical therapy can help that. So, so I, I totally agree with using therapy on those, those type of hips. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great, great explanation. Do you think some of these kinematic changes that you showed in your paper 
Uh, and the FAI patients, do you think some of those uh, changes with increased hip flexion and those things would improve with the appropriate therapy? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, the 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 answer is that let, let's just talk about hip flexion and internal rotation, right? So, assuming the pelvis is static or locked, so the patient's lying down, not in this paper, but more you're doing a physical exam. Physical therapy can improve range of motion a little bit because it's they can mobilize soft tissues, they can release the capsule, release kind of uh, you know fascial planes, and they can get you know a few degrees of of soft tissue manipulation. But ultimately, to really improve range of motion, you can get 5, 10, 15 degrees of more hip flexion by doing an adequate cam decompression, and you can restore anywhere from 5 to 15 degrees of internal rotation, sometimes even more, 20, by doing an adequate cam resection. So um, therapy has a small role to increase motion. Uh, I think the primary role for me for therapy is to actually unlock the back, not increase motion. I think if they try to increase motion, it aggravates the joint. If I really want to go after more motion, if I have a butterfly hockey goalie, uh, someone who needs a lot of internal rotation, then I have a very low threshold to do a, a large cam decompression. Right. Yeah, that's really helpful. And then some of the strength changes you, you showed in your paper with the gluteus medius and medial hamstrings, what are your thoughts? Do you think some of that uh, will recover after a cam decompression because, you know, this whole kinetic chain with the back and everything is changed? Yeah, so, I mean, so, you know, basically, so the first thing we did, we did the kinematic analysis, and the second thing, we did an EMG analysis, and anyone who's ever done an EMG analysis, it's a labor of love, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of work, but what we've showed that, you know, the glute med, which is really, if you're, there's a classic JBJS paper called Don't Throw Away the Cane, that was a, uh, a, um, a double AOS uh, invited speech in 19, by Dr. Blount, as of Blount's disease, and it's basically showing how you level a pelvis by firing your glute med. So we found that in FAI, the glute med gets locked and, and it gets shut down, which is, you know, I, I would say nobody would think that would be groundbreaking, and there are multiple other papers that showed that. We also show that the, the hamstrings, specifically the medial hamstring, was really, really shut down. That's really interesting because that goes to my whole theories of pelvic tilt. So there's a discoordination of the hamstrings, the rectus, and the adductor. And this gets to this whole point of secondary decompensation with FAI. Once the, 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 the back, as well as the front of the pelvis, a.k.a. your alphatic pubalgia stuff, once those get overloaded and get locked, they try to recruit motion where they can't get motion because the hip is not working well, the back and the front get overloaded, and then the whole kind of symmetry or orchestra of the pelvis gets dysregulated. And I do believe by doing a surgery where you give them, you know, a month of crutches, you increase increase motion in the joint, then you can unlock the back and the back can get more motion. The hamstrings will fire better and then the mead will fire better. Um, but I always say to patients, your length of time of muscle dysfunction prior to surgery is highly predicted to the length of time you're going to recover after surgery, which just makes sense. If you have a chronic condition and you have muscle dysfunction, it's going to take longer to recover versus you have a lacrosse player that hurts his hip and, and, and then a month later gets surgery, he's going to recover really well in four to six months. You have a, a weekend warrior that's been dealing with his hip pain for one to two years and has then really gotten really weak it's going to take them much longer than four to six months to fully recover that glute knee and those hamstrings. All right. That makes sense. One other thing to ask along those same lines, do you think there's some role for even patients, like you mentioned, that no therapist is going to improve 
doing some like prehab while they're waiting to have surgery? Do you think that they would recover faster if you get that glute meat working or it's just kind of a lost cause until you take care of that cam? Um, you know, my, my role for prehab is basically your gait. If you're limping before surgery and you don't have a failed hip joint, then I think you need uh, prehab. Uh, that the two examples I gave you with that lacrosse player, he's not going to be you know limping. He doesn't need prehab. He's strong as heck. He just needs to get his joint fixed. Um, but that person who's two years out, who's really had secondary decompensation and their back hurts now, their hamstring hurts, their adductor hurts. For them, I give them a, you know a month of prehab to. I'm like, you have to be a little bit more optimized. Pool therapy can help. You know, I always say surgery is like a, a marathon. You got to train for it a little bit. And if you come in with a 10% tank, you're never going to recover quickly from surgery. We got to get you the 50 to 60%, you know, sometimes so you can recover more easily from surgery. On those rare occasions, you get some of the 95% and then you don't need to have surgery. But yes, I do think prehab for the deconditioned uh, person who, who has a big limp is, is helpful. Yeah, that's great. One other thing mentioning, you know, the hip back and one other thing I saw in the paper, as you also mentioned earlier about the increased knee valgus with walking and FII patients. Tell us your thoughts and, you know, your gestalt about knee injuries and FAI. And I know there's some studies that discuss that. And do you think FAI surgery might decrease the knee injury risk in some of these people? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just respecting the kinematic chain. You know, um, if you uh, are, uh, I do hip and knee surgery, and, and I always say I'm a femur doctor. And if you have a very fixed hip joint, when you statically load it. So let's just say a basketball player who's doing, you know, a jump stop uh, to, to, to do a shot. If there's no motion in your hip and your back, it's almost like a fused uh, force, then that, that, that energy has to dissipate somewhere. And if you're in more valgus, it's going to put your ACL at risk and you're going to get an anterior translational force. So I've seen a lot of my patients with stiff hips and I'm like, who tore their ACL or they and, you know, they didn't really realize it was a correlation. So it's it's no different than any other fusion model in your lumbar spine. If you fuse, you know, your your your, your cervical neck from five levels above, you know, the next level below is going to then see all the load. And the same thing in the foot and ankle. That's orthopedics, biomechanics 101. And uh, uh, we see this more. There's, you know, Ashish Beatty, one of our old uh, fellows in Michigan, you know, wrote a paper about that in the NFL. We've operated on a few multi failed ACLs uh, where we did their hip with minimal hip pain to get more motion and then do their ACL. I'm not recommending that for everybody, but that's certainly respecting the kinematic chain and diagnosing all the problems is great for both the surgeon as well as the physical therapist. Yeah, that's it's interesting and great advice. And we were talking earlier about, you know, you have to be a, a doctor of the whole patient, not just here's the ACL torn, let's fix it. So that's good, great advice for us. Uh, mentioning, you know, this kinematic study, how you guys had about 10 patients and 10 control patients, what would you think if, you know, say there's a study with 100 patients with FAI, and do you think if you could parse out the different CAM sizes, do you think a larger CAM would be related to more changes in kinematics regarding the hip flexion and rotation that you were talking about? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's, there's certainly, you know, there, there's now we have so many other parameters. So a larger CAM certainly is one. You want to have pretty much symmetric sockets. You want to have symmetric acetabular version. And really probably the biggest driver of motion loss is actually not a cam, but it's actually femoral version. So if you have, uh, you know, a pretty moderate to big cam and your femoral version is 
normal to low, that's that's a hip that's, you know, uh, the wear simulator is really going on fast. Versus you can have a decent-sized cam and a lot of antiversion, and that antiversion is quite protective to that hip. So we know there's a lot of different numbers to really see, but, you know, there, there's such thing as, you know, we do a lot of CAT scans at the hospital for special surgery, and and we get kind of an impingement index, and we know people that have, you know, a high synergy angle, a low tonus angle, you know, a little bit of a retroverted acetabulum, and, and then they have a large cam and femoral retroversion. Well, that's a perfect storm of that hip that's going to fail at a really, really early age, you know, almost like an a, 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 almost like a skiffy hip. And so the, those are the things that you want to start thinking about. Where do you fall on this impingement spectrum? From one extreme is impingement, and other extreme is dysplasia, and there's a lot of gray in the middle. Yeah, that was a question I was going to ask you regarding version, and if you're getting those studies. And one question I, I wanted to ask you is that with the femoral version, what are you doing with that information? I guess if, if you have kind of, if it's off in left field, uh, some osteotomies, rotational osteotomies, or how do you approach that? Is it, you know, therapy post-operatively or instructing the therapist different? Or what are you doing with that specifically femoral version information? Well, I mean, let's assume that this patient's failed therapy and in six months, um, you know, if I'm, if I feel that the femoral version is mild to, to moderate, so say anywhere between 5 and 15, and they walk with a relatively neutral foot progression angle, so their foot faces relatively forward, I will just do a cam. I will do more of an aggressive cam and do more of a distal cam because femoral version impinges quite distally. That's my pearls of how to arthroscopically treat uh, a femoral version, and I do a very big, long T-cut. If I am doing, if I see a patient with zero or minus five or a failed hip scope, and you watch them and they walk with an external foot progression angle, well, that's the case where I'll do the revision hip scope and at the same time I'll do a derotation osteotomy because realize, you know, you want that, that external foot progression angle will be neutralized by uh, adjusting the rotation 10, 15 degrees. So, um, you know, you have to also think about um, if you really understand version, you have femoral version, but you also have tibial torsion or tibial version, and there are a lot of people that have compensated version, so they could have very low femoral version but their tibia is is actually uh, internally rotated. So their tibia, because the body is trying to compensate when you're a child. So even though they look like they're walking forward, their femoral version is very uh, can be very low too. So it, it shows you how it, there's another level of complexity. But if you just base low version, high foot progression angle, then you're you know you can think about derotation and likewise the other way, highly inverted hip, internally rotate foot progression angle you derotate the other way. That's the kind of uh, pearls for that. Yeah, that's awesome. It's kind of next next level thinking. And along the same lines, can you give us some more pearls regarding cam decompressions? And I know you mentioned your T-capsulotomy. Do you think, you know, for some younger surgeons, robotics or computer assistance to make sure there's proper resection indicating all those uh, different, you know, acetabular version, femoral version, do you think that's the future? Give us some tips and tricks and your thoughts of the future regarding cam treatment? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, as a, uh, as a, as a, gr as a group of arthroscopists, you know, um, we have, uh, and the Arthroscopy Journal has really embraced a lot of hip arthroscopy, you know, because of these articles and other articles uh, as, a, as a group, we've gotten much better. Ten years ago, we saw a lot of bad um, impingement surgery, and I think we've gotten much better at it. 
I think we're training a lot better from articles like this, from these podcasts, from uh, surgical technique videos, and just teaching a lot more. You know, I break this down, you know, this complicated field and this complicated concept. You're first making the right diagnosis. You know, that's what you first have to do. And, and then once you uh, have the right diagnosis, and if you have a stiff hip with lack of motion, uh, not extreme lack of motion, but lack of motion and, and, and a preserved joint, then how you arthroscopically do it. And the first thing you do, you, you need to get adequate exposure, right? And so a large interportal cut is very helpful. Uh, and then, you know, the next level of the operations, you learn how to, you know, uh, do labral surgery, you know? And then the next level op of the operation is you learn how to get exposure in the peripheral compartment. Uh, and there's ways that you can retract the capsule. I am a T-cut capsulotomy fan. One of my lines is surgery is fun when you can see. It's a line my father taught me. So, but to do big capsulotomies, you have to then learn, you know, you have to use your kind of basic shoulder arthroscopy techniques to close the capsule. And I'd say, and then once you get that, then you start getting better at your CAM decompressions. And I always say using fluoroscopy is, is a great tool in the beginning. Uh, my fluoro time and my CAM time has gone way down in the last, say, 15 years. I did a lot of research on robotics and navigation for this, and I do think it's a great tool. No tool has been made prime time, but it's a great educational tool uh, to learn what your consistent mistakes are. So I, I do see a lot of fellows labs and training labs having robotics and navigation to help you and using software to help you in the beginning. 100% I agree with that. And then, you know, it, it takes a lot of practice. That's, you know, you, you need to approach a procedure in a systematic way and adding a skill set every time and, and recognizing where you, you can improve and where, you know, where your consistent failures are. That's, that's how you have to approach this operation. Yeah, stepwise and certainly experience makes a difference. That's, that's appreciated, uh, all those pearls. So where do we go from here? Obviously, you're such a thoughtful guy and we appreciate all your your advice and, you know, thoughts about this kinetic chain, which is really amazing. But tell us about some other studies in the pipeline or what you think the future. I just want to kind of give you the last word as we wrap up here at this exciting field that's changed so much, like you mentioned lately, and it's just going to keep exploding, I think, in the upcoming years. Yeah, no, I, I do think hip spine syndrome is, is, is definitely real. You have to understand it. Uh, it's, it's, it's a huge field in arthroplasty now. They're seeing a lot of late failures where people who get degenerative spine disease uh, or they get spine fusions and their hips dislocate. And, you know, most posterior dislocations is from anterior impingement and a posterior dislocation. Well, anterior impingement is from a fixed back. So that's exactly what we're dealing with with FAI. So it's very similar. I think, you know, what's going to be a useful tool that's going to get more common that we've, you know, we've, as I referenced this paper before, is the use of dynamic imaging. So using, say, EOS imaging to flexion, uh, seating, and standing and seating x-rays, that really helps you to understand how much the spine moves and where the impingement is. Uh, knowing what's the right decompression, realizing that, uh, you know, a can an over-resection of a cam isn't always a good thing once you lose your suction seal. So there, there is this kind of sweet spot of where you want to take away some pathological bone, but not too much where you uh, lose a suction seal. That's going to be really devastating. So I think we have to learn more about that. Um, and, uh, and lastly, I think that the future is how we deal with the capsule. Uh, capsular management, where 10 years ago I'd say the most common reason for revision was misdiagnosis or failed FAI. 
Now it's still misdiagnosis. People miss instability or dysplasia, subtle instability, subtle dysplasia. The other thing I see is how to manage the capsule properly, how to manage it not only surgically properly, but postoperatively properly uh, with proper physical therapy. That to me is the next stage or the our gradual evolution in this field. Yeah, it's really exciting. And, and thanks for insight. We'll uh, let you get back to your busy schedule. I just wanted to thank you for sharing your results. And I didn't realize it's, it's a long time coming with uh, Travis Mack and what a great group of co-authors you have. So it's exciting time and congratulations on uh, taking uh, this this big study by the horns and having some great results to share with us today. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I want to thank all my co-authors. Uh, this was uh, it's, it's a great it's a great project, and I'm glad we finally published it. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Ronawat's article entitled "Dynamic Assessment of Femoral Acetabular Impingement Syndrome Hips" is published in the June 2021 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal and is available online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. Thank you so much for joining us. views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Music